This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity and New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all, and I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi, from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm, and I'm your host, Akhil Thomas, from Harvard University. Telugu Christians, A History, written by James Elisha Tanetti and published by Fortress Press in 2022, examines the history of Telugu Christians, a faith community located in the states of Telangana, Adra Pradesh, and Pondicherry in southern India. Tanedi does an incredible job in guiding the readers on a quest in retracing the history of Telugu Christians from the 16th century up until the contemporary. Working with archival data such as missionary and colonial records, books and songs written by Telugu Christians, Tanedi, as an insider, takes a historical approach in narrating the story of the Telugu Christians by analyzing how social aspirations of the community, local worldviews, and historical contingencies shaped the beliefs and practices of Telugu Christians. From the earliest encounters between the Christian message that European missionaries introduced and the local Christians, to the impact of Dalit conversions and women's leaderships, on the social fabric and theological texture of Telugu Christianity in the 19th and earlier 20th centuries, Tanedi successfully captures not only the broad history of the Christian communities among Telugu people, but also delicately unravels much of the complexities that lie within, such as the issues of caste and gender. Over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this very important work how it sets out to make a significant historical contribution to how we understand Christianity in India, and more specifically, Telugu Christianity, and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about the about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today, it is our privilege to talk with James Tanetti, the author of Telugu Christians, A History. 
James Sinetti is the director of the Singman Rhee Global Mission Center for Christian Education and assistant professor of world Christianity at Union Presbyterian Seminary located in Richmond, Virginia. After completing his theological education at the United Theological College, Bangalore, James received a master's degree at Princeton Theological Seminary and a doctoral degree from Union Presbyterian Seminary. His area of expertise is on Christianity outside of the global, outside of the Western Hemisphere. In addition to numerous essays and book reviews, James has also authored two other books on Christianity in South Asia, titled "Caste, Gender, and Christianity in Colonial India: Telugu Women in Mission." Uh, from Palgrave Macmillan Press in 2013 and History of Telugu Christians, a bibliography from Scarecrow Press 2011. James is also an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. He's also received his Master of Sciences degree in clinical pastoral counseling and patient counseling at the Virginia Commonwealth University and has served as an associate chaplain at Wayne University of North Carolina Hospital in Goldsboro. So welcome, Dr. Tenetti, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to talk about your book. It's a pleasure joining you both, and uh, welcome to those who will be joining us in this conversation as we chat now. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Um, as we begin our conversation today, and before we even dive into the book, um, I was wondering if we can begin by getting to know you more, uh, Dr. Tenetti. Um, do you mind telling us a few words about yourself, that is, uh, where you grew up, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field of study? Um, and if I could briefly also add, um, please mention um, who are some of your influential mentors that have shaped uh, your academic journey? Uh, this journey, of course, it has started with my ancestors, and I'm only a continuation of all their dreams. And uh, I grew up, I first born and I grew up in Samalkot on the southeast coast of Andhra Pradesh. On the mango-like cone that you see on the map, uh, you will find Andhra Pradesh on the southeast. And I come from uh, Samalkot, which is a kind of uh, semi-rural, semi-urban, but uh, I grew up at the margins. That's what I would put it. Uh, margins socially. And even otherwise, economically too. Uh, I grew up as a Dalit, one of the two families in a Shudra neighborhood, mixed neighborhood. So the blessing of that is I got an insight into other communities and their cultures, their worldviews. And I also have seen uh, the pain of being a Dalit outside a Dalit neighborhood. Okay, uh, and the other thing is, I happen to be the only son among uh, four daughters, four sisters. So there was that margin, gratefully receiving their affection. At the same time, uh, telling myself, okay, you're a loner in this too. And growing up in a Shudra neighborhood in those days, I mean in the 70s, uh, though, then the boundaries were much more stronger than now. So, so much so that when we go to school, we'll sit with people of other communities. Of course, occasionally they used to have uh, boundaries in the classroom too. And when we come home, I only got to play with my sisters and cousins, none else, because 
families would not let their children play with us. Uh, so uh, that has been my uh, beginning. At the same time, growing up a preacher's kid a, in a congregation predominantly of Shudra uh, origins, I have also received their uh, affection in many ways. So I've been an insider. I've been alienated. Uh, so there are two things, dynamics uh, happening there. That is the beginning, of course, of uh, my uh, journey as a child and uh, my own uh, intellectual uh, uh, journey. And talking about, that's the reason why whenever I write, think, talk, do something, I'm drawn towards the margins. That explains why I write what I write. And thank you also for asking me about mentors. Of course, along the way, I would not have made it in my life had there not been what they call uh, occasion, occasional puddles of grace, where one teacher in high school would call and say, hey, James, you have future. A kind of unexpected corner, understand? No? And uh, two people I would mention, one in seminary in India at United Theological College, Bangalore, now, Franklin Balasundaram, another Dalit, uh, another Dalit uh, historian, where uh, either in high school or undergraduate or in seminary, I used to study history but not like it. I hated it. Primarily because one community was missing, which consists of 15% of the society and more than 70% of the church. They would talk of anything else, everything else, except Dalits. So I did not like being in a class where I was not. My ancestors were not part of it. Okay, uh, in a way in 1991, when I came out of college, uh, where histories were being written, both in the church or in society, there was an attempt even to further wipe us out of their books. So it is during this time, Franklin Balsundaram gave me a kind of a formation which said, okay, James, you can write, you can teach. So he is one of those mentors. Uh, uh, of course, he has uh, uh, served, oh, he is now an ancestor, uh, he is no more, okay. The second one is uh, my colleague now, but my doctoral supervisor, Stan H. Uh, Skreslet. He taught me two things, uh, on the anatomy of writing, W-R-I-T-I-N-G, okay. For somebody who learned to write in Telugu first kept writing, again getting back to basics, the way to set up an argument, keep the reader with you, that's one. And writing R-I-T-I-N-G in uh, this profession of teaching, okay? There are some rituals that uh, we don't talk about, that we practice. For somebody who studied at 
the same university where I am teaching now, working with colleagues who were once my teaching, it needed uh, additional skills and grace to switch the role. And it needed a separate set of rituals. And Stan has helped me with that. Uh, and I'll add the third one. I said two, but let me add the third one. Katie Geneva Cannon. Katie Geneva Cannon, uh, again, uh, in ancestor now. How she has helped me was to be a graceful contributor to the uh, academy, being at the edges, a woman of color. And for me, of course, a man of color, but somebody who migrated to this place. And she knew and she told me that there will be challenges not only from the majority, but even from the minoritized scholars. How to navigate those challenges and graciously, honestly, contribute to the conversations. Uh, I think that's where uh, I saw her as a mentor, especially when I was applying for positions, uh, the language that was to be used, how to be patient, generous, at the same time assertive. These are skills that she has taught me. Uh, uh, here is a kind of short version of my long story, uh, Bjorn. Thank you, James, for that. <laughs> Wonderful answer. That makes me think of ancestors. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I would. <laughs> I'd like to invite you to tell us more about how you came to write this important work, Telugu Christians: A History, and um, how did this process begin for you, and what led you to writing this monograph, and what sort of archives and source materials did you turn to, and how was your writing experience? One, of course, uh, I would talk of decades, uh, 1991, that uh, rise of nationalism in India. Okay. Uh, the uh, current version of nationalism, put it that way, the beginnings of it, and the economic liberalization. Uh, coming from there, where I saw our histories being written and our histories in which we were absent. And I asked myself, where are we in this history? And I asked my senior colleagues, and the answer was, uh, was that there are no sources. Okay, uh, Basically, because there are two reasons. One, uh, the records, the church records in which our names were, like baptismal records, death certificates, these were born, burnt, uh, because uh, there is this policy, uh, uh, there is this danger, let me put it this way, there is this danger of any of my family members, are the last generation, are the previous generations, if our names are there, we Dalits would lose uh, the benefits that come out of uh, affirmative action called reservations. So basically, this generation and the previous generation made sure that our names are deleted from church records. Uh, that is one. The second reason is, literacy is a uh, new tool that we received 
with the Western education coming in. Until then, we were not allowed to read and write, let alone write our histories. So to prove people wrong, uh, in 2011, I wrote, I compiled uh, 700 uh, uh, sources and said, okay, if you want to write history of Telugu Christians, here are the sources. Of course, we were not absent, but we were not significant for them, for those who wrote it. So that's my uh, bibliography. Then I thought, okay, since I told them that it is possible, I have to demonstrate that it can be done. So 10 years later comes a story. Again, it's not a comprehensive one, but an invitation so that others can read, ask further questions, and write. Uh, as uh, Akhil has pointed out, uh, I have depended uh, extensively on archival material. And occasionally, when it came to uh, post-colonial period, uh, phone calls, ethnography, uh, uh, introducing myself. And I'm grateful for the people who trusted me with their answers, with their time, with their uh, wisdom. And along the way, I had, uh, uh, again, I would say it's a collaborative work. People who read through chapters commented, uh, and I'm grateful to each of them. And for any historian, no a word of thanks would be complete without thanking archivists. We exist because they exist. <laughs> so uh, the Canadian Baptist Archives in Canada and American Evangelical Lutheran Church Archives too, one in Philadelphia, one in Chicago, in the U.S. And others occasionally, when I asked, they chipped in with the documents. I'm grateful to each of them. Wow, thank you, Dr. Tenedy. I think it's a way, in a way, understanding this uh, process is like putting pieces of uh, different puzzle together. Um, how you've come this far um, and what journey you took. It's just fascinating to learn more about um, your journey. And we really appreciate um, you um, explaining that to us in detail. And at this time, I want to kind of um, segue into uh, going into uh, deeper into your book as if you open the pages of your book, we can see that there are a total of um, eight chapters, uh, which includes both the introduction and the conclusion. And along with some maps that help readers uh, locate some of the specific context uh, you refer to, um, you also include some beautiful hymns uh, of Telugu Christians as well. And if I can briefly highlight here, your book also includes a very robust bibliography, uh, which you also mentioned. Um, I think it can be an incredible resource for further studies for students and scholars, you know, that are learning, um, that are interested in learning more about Christianity in India and, and Telugu Christianity. Um, you have also very thoughtfully um, organized this uh, monograph into two parts. So part one, um, you tell the story of Telugu Christians during the time of Western colonialism. So uh, I think you begin by the 16th century, uh, and we see um, the story of also Portuguese, Danish, French, Dutch, and the British uh, influence um, in the midst as well. And um, we transition in part two, you unravel the dynamic developments, you know, that takes place within uh, Telugu Christianity in the post-colonial era. 
So as we dive into the chapters of your book, I would like to begin by asking you, uh, in a way, a two-part question. So please uh, feel free to answer this question first. I was wondering if you could provide us with some you know, general understandings of the nomenclature, the name Telugu Christians. I think it will be especially helpful for our listeners who might be new to India. Um, and I was wondering if you can share some general insights about Telugu Christians. Who are they? Uh, where do they come from? So would you like to introduce to us? It was strategic to use uh, a linguistic category uh, to say these are the people who speak Telugu. Uh, uh, strategic because there is this assumption that most, since most Telugu Christians are Dalits, people say, okay, let's call them Dalits, but there are others, non-Dalits that are there. So I wanted to have a kind of broader category. And here is a community, uh, as you have rightly pointed out, in Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, and uh, Yanam district of Puducherry, and even in Andaman Nicobar uh, Islands, which I did not cover. Uh, and this is the third most spoken language in India, uh, right after Hindi and Bengali. It, it wouldn't fall into the top five in the world, but it will be somewhere in the top 15. And uh, to put it uh, again, to bring it home close to the U.S., in the last 10 years, this is the fastest growing uh, community in the U.S. Uh, 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 so much so that you would see them in this national uh, uh, spilling contest. Uh, so these are the... Folks, I'm just bringing it close here. And among Telugu's, uh, Christians are only, of course, in Andhra Pradesh, 1.34%. And in Telangana, 1.29%. Uh, basically, in Andhra Pradesh, it will be around 1.1 million. And in Telangana, half million. So we are talking about a community of little more than one and a half million people. But numbers can be slippery, can be misleading. Because if not most, if not half, many of the Telugu Christians, when they were asked, when the census folks asked them, hey, what is your religion? They would identify themselves as Hindus. For two reasons. One, if they identify themselves as Christians, they would lose their educational and employment uh, opportunities that they get as Dalits. Okay, I, about Dalits, I'll uh, uh, explain further later. The, the second thing is, they said, okay, what is your religion means? Anyhow, of course, we are Christians, but culturally we are Hindus. That's how they see themselves. The second thing. The third thing is uh, the boundaries between uh, these uh, faith uh, differences, like Hindu, Christian, art porous. Uh, there is a multiple belongingness that happens. So uh, when they are at a wedding, when they are at home, or when they're at a funeral service, they are Hindus. 
that's how they see themselves to be when they come to church when they pray they see themselves as christians it's easy to slide between these two identities the fourth thing unless somebody says and the senses take place a teacher or an official that comes in the state officials who come in they don't ask what is your religion they put a religion for uh, for telugu christians which is hindu unless uh, a telugu christian would uh, look at it uh, look at the chart and say hey i am not a hindu put uh, christian there which does not happen so numbers can be misleading but uh, for those who claim themselves on census as christians they would number uh, a, a little more than one and of uh, million people and among one and of million 70 to 75% of them are dalits uh, those traditionally at the margins of the society when i talk about telugu christians of course uh, akil might want to contribute telugu community is an agrarian community okay we subsist subsist by cultivating harvesting uh, and it is rural land is fertile uh, it's called kind of rice bowl of india of course punjab is there okay but in south these are the ones the problem there is those with access to land have power so those are the shudras and those are those brahmins kshatriyas vaishyas who support the system in their own way creating uh, history making movies writing fiction they uh, they provide a kind of ammunition for the power control of those landlords uh, dalits are those denied of those resources both land ability to write uh, are uh, participate in uh, creating and sustaining a culture because they are outside and even from political processes so these are the dalits who uh, of course in the ni- uh, late 19th century came and joined uh, uh, christianity of which you read but uh, who, where did they come from there are many many theories okay but these may have been those who uh, uh, of course uh, dalits would say we are adi andras we are the children of the land we've been original inhabitants but i don't want to uh, what marginalize non dalits and say they're outsiders okay at some point they came some from somewhere and settled or else uh, they were there and interacted with other cultures both from north odisha or tamil nadu or karnataka and we have received some of our cultural uh, traits from others uh, but uh, i would say we have been always being locals of course well thank you so much for putting that context i think it will be very helpful um to listen to this as um listeners uh will read your book um to locate um understanding of how you've you know um categorized or framed uh telugu christians and 
Uh, the second part to my question was in regarding um, to the scholar that you draw from, um, you mentioned Lamin Sane. Um, for me as a world Christianity uh, student, um, it's it was very um, uh, interesting and it was very nice to see a familiar name as well. But uh, you delineated how Lamin Sane uh, is your interlocutor in this project, in your journey. Um, and you draw from his uh, a very important work translating the message, the missionary impact on culture. But Dr. Kennedy, as a scholar in world Christianity too, do you mind expanding a little more on how Sane's work influenced you and your own work in looking at uh, Telugu Christianity? Uh, putting it historically, uh, when he was writing uh, these uh, volumes, mm-hmm. uh, one on uh, a Christ Centered Cross and the translation, uh, of course, which is his... Uh, masterpiece, uh, uh, magnum opus. Uh, So uh, it was in the 90s, of course, uh, we were asking this question on, uh, of course, our histories were filled with, uh, of course, we were taught by Western historians, Western missionaries. We read their books and were taught about how they shaped our Christianity. And here is a voice a prophetic voice which said, okay, hey, pay attention. There are two levels. There are two layers. One, of those who transmitted, of those who preached, of those who introduced the Christian message, the other one is of those who received, heard, appropriated the message. So our focus, of course, uh, uh, has been... Uh, as those who received it, okay, uh, uh, traditionally, but let's, uh, has been on the local, on the native. Uh, so that's where. And uh, reading through, I uh, reading through him. Of course, uh, we realize that each of them, the transmitter and the local articulator, appropriator, have their own agendas. Uh, they are part of their societies, of their time, of their, uh, what they call uh, limitations and strengths, okay, of their worldviews. And uh, at the same time, focused on uh, the appropriator, the one who uh, received it and translated that of the message, uh, would not take away a role of the one who transmitted. Uh, there is always the transmitter there playing uh, their own game. Mm. Of course, it may not always play out the way they want it, but they continue to and they have a role in that. Uh, I do admit, but I, did, I do not focus on that as much as I would want to. Okay, That's where uh, the dynamics of empire come. Why would they do what they do and what else was uh, contributing to their transmission uh, of the Christian message? And uh, at the same time, uh, paying attention to the agendas, I would also uh, uh, add that it's not just one receiving culture. There are many, like the one that uh, Hindu, Dalit, uh, and uh, uh, all other neighbors that we had. Of, of course, you would ask later, later about, hey, how about uh, Muslim uh, neighbors? Okay, So they all had their own share in the transmission 
and evolution of the Telugu Christianity. Uh, I, of course, uh, as I gave you a hint, I do want to and I pay attention not only to the culture but to the power dynamics. Who gets to dominate this process of translation? Who is in power? And why those at the margins would give in to them? What is it that they were looking for? So uh, those elements uh, I pay attention, but have extensively and gratefully learned from uh, Dr. Laman Sane. Thanks, James. What a beautiful answer. I, yeah, especially dividing it, this history into the ones of the transmitters and the receiving cultures. I think that, I think that frames it really well. Um, and okay, I'll move to my question. Uh, in the second chapter, you you take us back to the early 16th century, 17th and 18th centuries in India and the early efforts of Christianization. Um, what I found interesting in this chapter and in which you've pointed out was that the common theme within each of these centuries is how European Christian missionaries targeted the elites and the upper strata of society in their missionary endeavors. And if you look at world Christian, world Christian history, I think this is not only common in India, but other regions where European missionaries went to carry out their missionary work. But towards the 18th century, we can see this vibrancy amongst the Telugu, especially through the flourishing of Christian literature in Telugu. And I was wondering, Dr. Trinity, if you could expound more on what, it, what was happening, what was taking place during this time, especially towards the second half of the 18th century and the production of of a peculiar Telugu theological literature such as the Vedanta Rasayanam by Mangalagiri Anandam. The second half of the 18th century and the flourishing of Christian literature, especially produced by the elite, uh, needs to be located in that uh, uh, the situation where uh, there are new powers that were coming in from Europe. They were competing against each other. <laughs> okay, So Europeans were at odds with each other. So were the locals. Uh, there are power centers in North, in Dakshina, Dakkan, okay? in South. And in South, there are power centers as well. And among Telugus, there are uh, competing power claims, of course, from Kshatriyas, the princes, the local princes. And uh, those who uh, are uh, uh, priests, who are expected to serve them at the same time, they have their own interests, Brahmins. So this... uh, what they call intra and inter. And among Brahmins, again, there are some uh, differences. Okay, power struggles between them. So those who have embraced Christianity have their own uh, uh, agendas. In the second century, by then, we had a translation by a Protestant uh, missionary, Benjamin Schultz. But these have come from... uh, mostly a Catholic elite Brahmin Christians, primarily because 
they were getting closer to these European powers. And by then, uh, Jesuit scholars have already written catechisms, dictionaries, and uh, literature, mostly in conversation uh, mode, genre, like dialogues. And these have been uh, influenced by them and said, okay, why not we write our own faith? And Telugus have been known for writing. Uh, this is one of those ancient uh, writing uh, cultures. So that has been there. And in the second half of 18th century, we also had this print media coming in. Accent on writing has been there all along. But eagerness to see their writings printed and more uh, printing missions coming in. Okay, So that those together, I think... Uh, uh, a new religion in the market, okay? Competing power struggles, claims by Europeans and locals. And occasionally royal patronage, okay? You write about this Christianity and I will give you uh, this kind of gift from the king himself to the Brahmins. And accent, Christian accent on writing and print media. I think uh, this, uh, this is a brilliant question and you made me think and these, I think, are the ones that contributed to the flourishing of Telugu Christian literature in the late 18th century. Well, thank you so much for that answer. It really, um, it was very fascinating as we see the progress of the growth and in, in number of Christians as well. And I think this kind of echoes into, pours into the third chapter to how we see this rise of Christianity among um, the Telugu uh, Christians as well. In the following chapter three, um, you've titled it as a confluence of three worlds. Um, we are able to take a look at Telugu Christian, Christianity and the convergence of three worlds. Um, you put it as Dalits, Hindus, and Western missionaries. I think you've also mentioned this in the previous answer, but here you touch upon various um, aspects that took place in the 19th century. So we're heading into the 19th century and um, that pertain to the Western missionaries continued uh, work targeting these high caste Hindus and the Brahmins. Um, and we also see this uh, mass uh, conversions taking place, especially among the Dalits as well. And it is here I would like to kind of pose my next question to you, Dr. Tenetti, and that is, um, you have spent quite a bit of ink um, on, on this part. Um, do you mind highlighting just, you know, some of the reasons why Dalits embraced and converted to Christianity during this time? Um, we see, because we see a lot of mass conversions taking place. And do you mind speaking a little more on what kind of impact um, these mass conversions had on the uh, Telugu church? Whenever uh, I come to this part, uh, this subject, uh, I'm grateful to uh, John C.B. Webster and Jeff Audy. And uh, in a way, uh, folks like uh, Eliza Kent and Gauri Vishwanathan, okay, uh, who put this into the context of uh, uh, the culture wars, caste struggles, and colonial uh, environment in which these were uh, happening. Of course, the standard answers that are uh, given are, uh, Jeff Hardy would say, this is a social protest. Uh, and uh, Webster would say, okay, 
Dalits were looking for space in the society and uh, uh, a, a degree of dignity, respect that uh, uh, Eliza Ken could use, the word uh, uh, respect. Uh, and in that, they've been, even before Christians have come in, they have tried out different options. But uh, Western missionaries have given them at another alternative, religious uh, alternative. And my post-colonial friends would say, yeah, there were uh, local power structures and the new one came in, adding to the mix. And they wanted to identify themselves with one power center or at least have access to uh, a power center, uh, a judiciary, understand, uh, police protection, or uh, access to land, which did not happen until the beginning of 20th century. Okay, that's one explanation uh, given. And the other one, uh, it's not just about power. They were looking for an opportunity uh, where they would be at home and would be accepted. Nate Roberts would say, okay, uh, the place where they would be cared for. Uh, and uh, Rupa Vishwanathan say, oh, yeah, uh, these are the ones who did not have access to either land or concrete buildings. And here comes a missionary who would say, okay, we'll fight for your land and you can have a concrete building as a school or a temple or a church. Okay. Uh, here are things that were happening in the late uh, uh, 19th century. And more than that, there is something in the belief. If you read carefully these missionary uh, reports and uh, the local uh, responses to that, here is a religion which said we are not looking for the wise, the powerful. We are, uh, this is a gospel for those who are not so wise, not so powerful, those at the margins. So there are such verses in the Bible that these missionaries have highlighted. Whether they highlighted or not, but these folks were finding those verses that appealed to them. And uh, the other one is, uh, there is the central figure in Christianity, in the message that was brought, that is Christ. Christ who by choice would go and spend time with those at the margins, publicans, sinners, those who've been ostracized. Not only that, for those of us, for my ancestors who were Dalits, they saw a God who would come touch them, touch even a leper, and we were untouchables once. Okay. And here is a God who had the courtesy and grace and even the courage, not everybody can touch us, understand, would come and touch us and that spoke uh, a lot, which uh, uh, Kalyanra, uh, uh, in his Untouchable Spring, Antarani Vasantam highlights. Uh, so they found a central figure, Christ, who touches them and a message which is aimed at them. Uh, what changes has it brought? Of course, the uh, changes are selective, the ones that they wanted, diet in most cases, and uh, eagerness to write, learn to write, uh, literacy, put it that way, literacy. 
and even other uh, changes like uh, rituals like wedding related to uh, death birth when rituals change meanings change okay so there were uh, so lifestyle changes uh, changes in understanding uh, but in a way uh, they have also changed christianity which we will talk later okay. yeah James what a fascinating answer i yeah this and this question is closely related to your answer and um a very crucial part of your chapter 4 um is uh, and which is also central to the field of world christianity is that it sheds light on the contribution of women and in this chapter you focus your attention on the role of women in telugu christianity especially as you present an interesting finding on the telugu bible women so dr tinari do you mind explaining a little more on who these bible women were and what their roles were within the telugu church and what kind of work were they involved in in the society thank you for asking this uh, question uh, of course we are talking about an office a ministry a profession okay that began in early 1870s among telugus almost 15 years after it started out in uh, london okay uh, it has come and from 70s until 1920s it has been predominantly shudra women who wanted to be and who are found eligible to be bible women okay and from 20s until recently uh, until 1980s of course there are a few but uh, you can ca- count them by fingers now there are not many around uh, it's a kind of uh, a profession that uh, uh, has died down in the in- in independent india when men took over okay uh, that's one of our uh, what they call parts of the package uh indigenization where we did not want these bible women to be active okay uh but what they were doing is uh, uh of course these were uh, letter something which was not uh, uh something that which was not uh, which was an innovation in those days that women not all women could have access to letters the social reformers said okay women can also write but taught it only to brahmin women okay uh, brahmos uh, so here is this uh, missionary infrastructure which said okay both men and women should uh, learn to read so these bible women were lettered but did not write much okay they only taught literacy and they found dignity in what they were doing in the sense uh, uh in dalit culture they used to be active in religious life and in, even in bhakti uh, movements they were active but eventually uh, they wanted to reclaim their activism and they found it in the uh, church uh, what they did uh, was of course uh, uh, one thing that stayed is most of the leaders in the 60s 70s and 80s were those who been raised by bible women so they knew how to access uh, education 
raise their children and raise them to be leaders okay that's there and in the community i'm talking going out of the home uh, uh, roles now they preached I mean, not in a pulpit but in streets uh in uh, uh at homes in the living spaces and occasionally at churches too okay that's there they taught taught in schools taught in church schools they cared they cared in hospitals and in ho- uh, home settings where there was a need for care and some of their care involved touching to have a dalit bible woman considered untouchable now to come and touch there was healing both personal and social and not just that when it, the issues came let us say uh, there was puberty and their families didn't know what to do because they are christians new to the faith and they wanted some clarity they cannot go to a missionary and ask they cannot go to a male pastor there was a death in the family what to do now they cannot go to a missionary who is traveling all the time our male pastor the first reference point would be a bible woman so they translated mediated and even modeled they said okay this is how we can be active in public spaces and at home uh, these are different roles of course roles kept changing over the years but these are the prominent ones uh, i hope i have answered you uh, mr vakio Well, thank you for that great answer, um, Dr. Tenedi. I, in reading about this chapter especially, I was also reminded about Korean Bible women. You know, we see these Bible women not only rising here in, you know, in India, but in different places in the global south as well. And it was just fascinating to see the similarities and also the differences um, that you've highlighted just now. Now, with your answer to um, our previous question, we now transition into the second part of your book, part two, um, and our following questions will be more in line to um, to the chapters that come in part two. So, um, Dr. Tenley, you insightfully argue um, that on account of the caste stigma attached to association and sharing company with uh, Dalits. Shudra converts may have become alternative avenues for the creation of few forms of being Christian. Um, this is very fascinating line of inquiry, and I was wondering if you can say some more about these forms of being Christian with respect to forms of Dalit uh, Christianity. Yeah, multiple uh, m- modes, modalities, avenues of being uh, Christian. By 1933, uh, there was a study done by uh, Bishop uh, J. W. Pickett where uh, uh, mass conversions were at heights, at their uh, what they call the pinnacle. <laughs> okay, things would change later. In mid 30s, things would change later. And uh, having seen changes in lifestyle among uh, Dalits, kind of improvements in their lifestyles. shudras began to convert and even other indigenous non dalit communities began to convert both in telangana and in uh, andhra pradesh then uh, they would not be comfortable going to a uh, dalit 
church, a congregation and sit with them and break the bread with them. <laughs> okay. And these are the ones who would not be comfortable listening to a Dalit preacher preaching. So they wanted uh, other spaces where they can be Christians. And other ways that of practicing uh, Christianity. In the first 20 years, it was difficult, but there were new uh, alternatives coming up. One, Pentecostalism. IPC, Indian Pentecostal Church, Assemblies of God, of course, came later, but Church of God, uh, these were the options. And then we had uh, more, uh, the holiness movements led by uh, uh, Mr. Bhak Singh, our uh, Devadas Aigar, okay, Mr. Devadas, okay. These were the ones uh, who said, okay, uh, why have the churchianity? Why go to your church? That's what it means. Okay. Where you can be a faithful follower of Christ in your own communities. So they gave those spaces, alternative spaces for them. But they did not flourish as long as the British were there. So both the Hebron movement uh, led by uh, Bhakt Singh are the Bible mission. Uh, of course, that was that is movement and this is mission. Not neither of them are churches, okay. And we had layman evangelical fellowship, not a church again. These were anti-church, anti-churchianity movements. These flourished after uh, the so-called independence, where uh, uh, the uh, missionaries by then have left, and uh, local Christians had more space to. Uh, define their Christianity, and these shudras found, of course, uh, most of these shudras found uh, uh, safe haven in these movements. And of course, there are some shudras who joined uh, uh, what we call Church of South India, Baptist, Lutheran, uh, Mennonite churches, but there are not many. Uh, you can count those. Uh, uh, Congregations, uh, there they won't be many, but most of them have uh, gone towards these movements. That is a wonderful segue to uh, my next question, which is that you read uh, the work of Abil, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it this right, Abil Masilamani. I, I pronounce it the Malayalam way. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, uh, Abel Bernagos uh, Masilamani, but he is popularly called A.B. Masilamani. It works out better. Ah, A.B. Yeah. Yes, uh, South Indian name, A.B. <laughs> um, so you, wrote, you read closely the work of Abel Masilamani among many other leaders of, Ind of these indigenize, indigenization movements who, as you beautifully put it, synthesized bhakti and evangelicalism through song. That is beautiful. Um, could you tell our listeners some more about the role of translation in these in the delicate dance between bhakti and evangelicalism for the Telugu Christians? Thanks again, uh, A. B. Maslamani. Uh, of course, uh, a Baptist of Ken uh, what we call uh, who grew up in a mission uh, compound in a hospital. Mom, a Bible woman. 
okay there was a translation there and dad a uh, health worker in a mission hospital and you know who gets to play a major role in uh, one's uh, uh, theological formation uh, it was mom and uh, he studied at mcmaster university and then at acadia university and he studied under chetty banumurthy when he was in uh, a local seminary in kakinada a baptist seminary chetty banumurthy was a vaishya um, uh, traditionally a business family but he was a, a prolific writer a brilliant brilliant uh, uh, hymn writer and composer uh, some classics so naturally to a seminary locally consisting of so many dalits here comes ab maslamani who was uh, of uh, you know that smith uh, goldsmith family people who uh, make access gold accessories his community is of that so they call themselves highest because uh, uh they have access to gold but they are not brahmins but they have access to letters they write they sing they know these musical uh, notations these two bonded well so a vaishya helping of course they are, they would be offended if i call them shudras but uh, one of these goldsmiths because these are powerful okay uh then him going uh, from bhakti tradition into canadian baptist setting sectaria and mcmaster with their evangelicalism by the way both bhakti tradition and evangelicalism at their inception were protest movements but now they have gone into the hands and the pens of folks like chittu banumurthy <laughs> okay his teacher ab maslamani another bard in the sense uh, so these are the ones who would give meaning and words to those messages that they have they have inherited both from their bhakti upbringing and evangelical training and uh, talking of translation now uh, there are two meanings one he literally translated okay literally translated some uh, european english of course uh, hymns mostly european i think maybe one or two uh, north american okay so that's for sure he translated hymns but he wrote hymns uh, basically uh, on say year they would have these uh, like in kerala the huge conventions uh all telugu uh, uh christians of course not all but most of them would come and he was called upon to preach in telugu he used to preach at maromon convention too so he would preach and after preaching a sermon the whole theology he would put it in a song capture it and teach them so they go back walking or on bullet bullock carts or in train or buses singing these songs so made an imprint on their minds so these new okay like ab maslamandi and other uh, 
Shudra and Brahmin uh, writers, high caste writers knew exactly how, which words to bring up, which meanings and emotions to evoke, and how to find space in people's memory and in their uh, practice and perceptions. And uh, you would see, okay, one thing that would be there, Christ. We had someone else in the past, but now we have Christ. They would not give up on that. Okay, that's one. The other one would be, it's mostly a kind of praise songs. And Rai R.R. Uh, uh, Sundar Rao has written a book on that, Bhakti songs and the motifs in it. Mostly praise and adoration. Then I would add, of course, for Dalits who were known for the spirituality of resistance and protest, they said, okay, now better get used to submission. Submit to the divine and submit to those who represent the divine. The new ethos has come up as a kind of uh, a part of this uh, union between uh, bhakti and evangelical thing. And uh, for those who've been uh, struggling in life, day in and day out, not able to understand the reality, this world that is cruel, they did bring in elements that are otherworldly. So most of it has been at least in that part of the century. I mean, uh, uh, early and even, the, uh, let us say, 20th century, it ha uh, the songs have been otherworldly. So that's how these uh, two movements have uh, merged, converged in uh, their literature. Oh, that's that's fa so fascinating about learning about these convergences, these this um trans uh, translation role of translation and and all that, as um it's quite interesting how song also plays an important role in Christianity as well, but um in kind of uh, segueing into our next chapter, you've titled this as the movements around and outside the church. So we see not only what what's happening inside but also outside the church, and. In this chapter, I was not familiar with the prominent movement of Subarao, um, which um, described as a Hindu response to Christ by Kaj Bhagal. Um, and this was really fascinating. And I was wondering if you could talk a little more about the Hindu character of this response to the figure of Christ. Um, and did this movement have any influence on other sects of uh, Telugu Christianity? Thank you. And there is this... Uh element, uh, this is in addition to what uh, I've said, uh, Subbarov also was a good songwriter. Uh, okay, the difference between A.B. Mas, uh, for Telugus, if at all somebody wants to be a, uh, an effective theologian, it is not in books, it is not in lectures, not in sermons, it is in songs, that's the key. If somebody wants to be uh, uh, wants to flourish as a theologian among Telugus, the key is music. If one can write songs, they made it. Okay, so that's the reason why Ab Maslamani comes in. Subbara also wrote extensively. The difference was anybody can understand Maslamani's songs. Not many would understand 
superb of songs he was highly sanskritic uh, richard hivna uh, wrote a, a, a booklet uh, i let's call it a book okay uh, uh, on subbarrao and his uh, theology and uh, when uh, the issue came about uh, trying to understand for somebody who grew up in the us uh he asked two people to translate his uh, uh songs one was uh, puladendri salmon raj and other was uh, me okay and basically it is a kind of uh, a process where we did not know what we were doing so one day we would sit together and uh, i would look up to this great uh, sanskritist uh, uh salmon raj and said okay there is so much of telugu that i did not know uh salmon raj's uh, no, no i mean uh, uh subbarao's telugu was so archaic and sanskritic it's difficult for the singer to understand so he wanted christianity to be uh both alien and inaccessible okay so what uh, how he got the traction was it was a caste movement among kamas one of the land owning uh, uh, communities uh, in andhra pradesh and these kamas of course uh, he did try a check out with i'm using our uh, market terms he did try a check out with uh, uh, local lutheran churches he didn't like it because it's predominantly of course that's one of the reasons he would say these were corrupt that was his explanation okay and he would say that they have uh, imprisoned christ in doctrines christ needed to be liberated one song he says my liberator christ they have imprisoned you captivated you captured you okay so he wants christ to be uh, liberated from these liturgical churches and their doctrines and their rituals basically what you mean is uh, baptism and uh, what we call the lord's table or the holy communion but then for him these are alien why would you be baptized like those lutherans who are predominantly dalits uh, and he would say hey pigs uh, that's uh, uh how would you be made clean just by getting into the water uh he says that's part of your nature you would continue to be dirty okay a pigs means you can interpret in different ways especially with dalits being uh, identified as dirty ones impure ones okay so he would go and he had uh, it's still there it's still there uh, at least in 2005 unless something else happened after that uh, uh there is this uh, right besides his church his house uh, he has built a hall meeting hall which he would not call it church uh now there lies his uh, body his tomb uh, people go on uh, not on sunday because that would be churchianity okay <laughs> uh but on a friday or any other given day and go sing bhajans songs that he wrote and read only go- the gospels 
because Christ is the hero there. Not the Hebrew Bibles. Prophets are uh, uh, those the, the law. Okay, not even the epistles, either John nine or uh, Paul, but only Christ. Okay, after he is gone, now this is a healing site. Of course, uh, they go not for the readings, not for the prayers. We, of course, they love these prayers and readings, but usually in times of need. Seeking help, uh, usually at uh, at the tomb. So it's believed that the tomb now continues to mediate for them. He is an ancestor to them. So, what influences did it have on others? Okay, uh, there are uh, two two uh, ways, but not complete continuation. Uh, Maranatha Viswasa Samajam founded in the eighties. That is right when this movement was declining in its shadow. Okay, uh, turned out to be a caste movement among Kamas. So some of those who patronized that have joined this movement. But there is a difference, though. First, they would continue to be uh, uh, they would continue to sing bhajans, indigenous modes of worship. And they call themselves fellowship, not church. But Maranatha Viswasa Samajam has uh, two key things: rituals called baptism and uh, the ordinance of the uh, uh, the Lord's table, not the sacrament, but still an ordinance. So those are the uh, not innovations, but. Uh, uh, Discontinues this between the both, and the whole notion of me not being in covenant with other congregations, we might call, are other fellowships, refusing to be in fellowship with others, is a continuity that continues now in most of the independent churches. Of course, if I say that you have this from uh, either Subbarao or uh, uh, Baksing or Devadasu, uh, uh, they may not appreciate it. But uh, the longing to be independent has come uh, from these sources. Yeah. Uh, hmm. yeah. What a yeah. This has me thinking in so many ways about. Yeah, my own area, which is Catholic uh, missionaries in Kerala, uh, um, and and that cuts across, and I think that that leads into this question as well about um, caste and its influence on the development of Telugu Christianity. And um, so, can you tell us a little more about caste and its influence on the theology of the community itself? Um, and there is this beautiful passage in the end, in the conclusion, where you talk about, which I had not seen done before, where you talk about the father and the, the son and the spirit, and you say there is, there is caste in that, and that's um, that's fascinating. Um, and there is also um, a marked absence on the influence of um, Islam on the on the development of Telugu Christianity, which is which is which also is consistent with Kerala, um, where Islam has been missing or has been written out in some ways. 
So do you have any thoughts on, um, on this absence? There are two questions. One about the caste and its influence on Christianity. For a Telugu mind, Christian, Hindu, Muslim, or even an Ambedkarite, okay, uh, even a Marxist, uh, mind cannot think beyond caste and people cannot relate apart from those relationships because we are born into it. It's a kind of uh, inherited, given disability. <laughs> okay? We live with it. We live with it. Mainly because uh, labor is divided. There's a division of labor. I do this. I am born to do this. You do this because you are born to do this. Of course, now uh, uh, the traditional occupations may have changed. But the very perception that one is born to do something and should not do something else is a kind of remnant of caste system on Telugu societies and even in ministry, in the church, Telugu church. That's one. Other remnant is we cannot think in terms of uh, parity or equality. There has to be a hierarchy. Father. Okay, the sun, the spirit. and Of course, some people put spirit on the top and some people put Christ on the top, but they cannot uh, live together in equality, in, uh, in harmony. Uh, that's a kind of uh, thing that we've been... Uh, that's how our mind works. That's uh, uh, We can see that in uh, our uh, practices, typical uh, public gathering of worship in our sermons and in our hymns, our liturgies. Uh, that goes there, of course, if they, uh, we were given a preference, uh, choose between caste and Christ, uh, we would, uh, of course, uh, may confess to choose Christ, but would own caste. That's how uh, we function. Uh, I may be a little hard, but that's the reality. Uh, there. Speaking of uh, another uh, stream of, uh, let's say, a, a contributing uh, stream to Telugu Christianity, he rightly pointed out, why not Muslim, uh, Islamic influences on Telugu uh, Christianity. Of course, in Telangana, when Christian Christi, uh, uh, missionaries came, both uh, Catholics and Protestants, uh, especially in the 18th, 19th, and uh, first half of 20th century, it was Mus Islamic rulers who were ruling. Um, missionaries would not find space there unless they were given patronage. Uh, with the patronage, they have to operate, uh, navigate carefully. Uh, that's uh, one. Uh, and uh, the other one is uh, then and even now, Muslim neighborhoods are different. Of course, uh, even Dalits who become Muslims, uh, if that has happened in the last hundred years, they would not go into these neighborhoods. Of course, there are... Uh, 
arguments to say uh, they were uh, uh, conversions to Islam uh, and they consist of uh, our, uh, the Muslim neighborhoods. But the recent ones, they would still stay at the edges. Okay, that's there. So there is not much cross-fertilization between uh, uh, these two communities given their uh, territorial uh, uh, distance, geographical boundaries that are there. Uh, and there are not many Muslims who would become Christians, not many Christians who would become Muslims. Okay? And if at all, this is a kind of wild uh, shot, Akhil. Uh, of course, uh, these Dalits who had no book in the past, for us, scriptures were spoken, not written. Our understanding of the Bible, I argue, has come from two sources. One, Hindu understanding of their scriptures and Muslim understanding of their scriptures coupled with evangelical and evangelicals understanding of their scriptures so sometimes uh, including uh, verse number and chapter number uh, is uh, seen as so infallible that it has come right from somewhere else and of course uh, among hindus there is a multiplicity and among muslims there is a multiple understandings of scriptures but still i do see some of those in the sense these trying to see their book, the Bible, as sacred as uh, the others. And uh, it is not Telugu Christian uh, uh, story, but in Delhi, I went to a uh, Church of North India church, which consists mostly of those Muslim converts. And uh, on a Sunday afternoon, they had this... Uh, tables for uh, sale. A vendor, outside vendor came and was selling tables for the Bible. For Basically, because uh, when they were uh, Muslims, they had an elevated space, a stool to keep their book, the sacred uh, Quran. And now after becoming Christians, they retain the stool so that their Bible at home can be equally seen and respected as sacred. Uh, so uh, that's from Delhi, but still, uh, Telugu Christians do have the tendency to elevate their book uh, as uh, uh, to, as in, uh, heavenly and infallible as the book of uh, these neighboring communities. Yeah. Wow, thank you, Dr. Tanedi, um, for uh, your answers and the depth that you've provided in, in our questions. And again, thank you so much for your time today to discuss uh, this very important work that you have published. Already, time has flown by so quickly in this engaging conversations with you. But um, we do want to conclude today's interview um, with two kind of uh, brief uh, questions. And the first one is, um, do you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects and what you hope to work on? And the second part to my question will be, what do you hope then scholars in 
working in world Christianity and studying Christianity in India and Telugu Christianity will take from your book and what new doors or uh, for research would you say your book opens up to? So uh, these two part questions we would like to ask. I'll start with the uh, second one mm -hmm. uh, where I would say I had a limitation when I was working on this. I wish I knew Portuguese, French. Uh, so I do wish uh, those, of course, this is a demonstration that the story can be told. A story that deserves to be heard can be written. But those with access to those languages, I would appreciate, uh, I would see that as a possibility for them to study 16th, 17th uh, centuries and Christianity in those periods, uh, especially those of uh, our Roman Catholic uh, uh, friends, siblings. That's uh, one. And I would also say that uh, this book, Telugu Christians History needs to be read in conjunction with uh, the one by John Kerman and Chilkuri Vasantharaf on Christians in South Indian villages. And uh, read it along with that and pay attention to how our local cultures have uh, shaped our... Uh, of course, I just started it. A lot more to be uh, done and the third one would be uh, see those uh, imprints of the empire all along pay attention to them and whenever I say that I always urge my uh, uh, post-colonial friends do not do not uh, look down at these Dalits for the choices that they have made uh, there is a tendency <laughs> Uh, that some of us have it. And I would say, give these Telugu Christians, especially those at the margins, their uh, uh, due respect. Uh, that those things uh, uh, I would invite folks to pay attention to. And uh, wh what is in my mind now? Of course, I'm uh, recovering. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next thing that I am thinking about uh, to write a, a story, a story about an institution called the Bible Society in India, because uh, there are such institutional histories elsewhere, but not uh, uh, for uh, Bible Society in India, which might be a kind of uh, a traditional rendering, rendering, but looking at their theologies, changes that took place. And the three E's come up, empire, evangelicalism, and ecumenism. Uh, the Bible societies have been those parts where uh, at least Protestants came together. <laughs> okay, So uh, that's what is in my mind. And uh, eventually, since I began, and uh, of course, uh, as I said, uh, I'm willing to learn from those who write about Telugu Christians. I would continue to. Uh, but I also have this uh, uh, two afterthoughts. One is uh, I have not covered sufficiently the last 30 years of Telugu Christian history. Last 30 years of radicalization uh, where uh, Christ alone has become Christ against 
intolerance towards other faith communities. And uh, in the uh, traditional one, until 80s, there was a craving, a craze, eagerness to learn letters, to be educated. Now there is an allergy towards education. Okay? And there is this, I call this radicalization for another reason, where any itihas, any myth can be seen as history. Uh, this is another sign of uh, thing. And there is this uh, public theology where, of course, all otherworldly theologies are public theologies. We continue to be otherworldly, but when the elections come, uh, we are the most worldly, forgetting that we have other commitments as Christians. So uh, that would be the last 30 years again. In the light of raising nationalism among uh, the fundamentalist majority community, uh, so-called, I would not call them Hindu, uh, Hindu, but Hindutva. So when there is radicalization in other communities, naturally resisting it, we get to conform it and imitate it. And that's one story that has to be uh, told, which I might do either in a chapter or maybe 30 years can be a book too, that's, I understand, no? that's there. And uh, there is a Telugu Christian diaspora uh, in the US, Maldives, South Africa, Singapore, uh, Myanmar, and they have their own distinctive uh, theologies uh, dislocated from their homelands. That also would need some attention, but one at a time. <laughs> okay, one question to ask, one page to write. So I have enjoyed what I've done, and I'm looking forward to these projects. Of course, wow, Dr. Tenetti, those sound like great projects. Um, and what you're envisioning is is very exciting for us as listeners. As um, and I look forward, and we both look forward to reading more of your work as well. So. Once again, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Thank you for having me and uh, grateful for the great questions you have and the great work you are doing in terms of your research. And I'm looking forward to learning from both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And also thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Telugu Christians, a history written by James Tanetti and published by Fortress Press in 2022. This is your host, Dion Ho Choi. Stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.